which was the sort of the key covenant sign, we're saved without that. He's looking at the beginning of salvation. So he's saying we, faith alone is what is needed to be saved. James is then looking at the sanctification experience. He's looking at our everyday life as a believer and he's saying, but you, faith needs work. Real faith will have works. And so there's just the two different perspectives. And they're not fighting each other. They're really just two different sides or aspects of the, of the completed story. And so uh, he, he starts here with this question, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Now, my New King James just has, can faith save him? I prefer, and I think that some of you will have Something like, can that faith save him? That is a better uh, translation. It, uh, it stresses an article that's there, which would, uh, would, could be translated by something like that or that kind of faith save him. So uh, preferably uh, that kind of a, a issue. So if you have something that does not have the, an article or the word that, that in front of that uh, faith there, I would suggest that you maybe write it in or whatever because it really would help and um, does, do, does fit the actual grammar that's behind him. And so, uh, so he's asking the question, what is it profit? So what is profit? What is profit? If, if you are in a bit, let me ask it this way. If you're in a business, why do you want profit? If you're in a business, why do you want profit? I know it's sort of an ambiguous question. I'm not sure. How, I'm trying to think of a better way to say it. John? Well, it keeps the business going. Okay. And what are you going to use, do, do the prop, use for the profit, John? What are you going to use the profit for? Well, to some degree, keep the, keep the business improved, and to some degree, live off the increase. Yeah, you've off the increase, right? And so, uh, what, does anybody have a different word than the word profit in that, in that verse? Good. good. What good does it do? Okay. Anybody else? What use is it? Anybody have the word advantage? No? Okay. Uh, yeah, so he's saying, you know, if I, if I have faith, I'm showing my faith and I don't have any works, can I exchange that faith for anything? Will that faith show that I'm growing in Christ? Will that faith showing that I'm being obedient to Christ? And he's saying, no, it won't show anything. There won't be any, there won't be any net gain to my life if my faith doesn't have action along with it. There will be no, no, no change, no net gain in my life. And so that's the question he asked. Interestingly enough, and you've probably heard this maybe from me and from, certainly from others, but in the original language, um, the Greeks had two ways of asking a question, and they had two words that they could choose. One of the words, when they used it in a question, expected a, a no answer, and the other word, when they used it in a question, expected a yes answer. Now, we can lead people, maybe we as parents have done this with our children sometime or another. We can lead people to give us the answer we want by sometimes the way we, the word order that we use or by our inflection that we might say, the way we say a sentence may leave something like, oh, how can I say anything but yes to that or how can I say anything but no to that? The original languages simply had a choice of two two-letter words that one expected a no answer, the other expected a yes answer. And here James asked this question in verse 14 and he is expecting a no answer. The way that the, the word he chooses, the way he puts it together grammatically, does expect a no answer. So the answer is no. You're not going to have a prophet if you have faith, but do not have works. That, that, and that faith cannot save him. So James is, in fact, expecting 
no answer to that question. This next verse, it's, I, again, I don't know if I've said this, to, I think, to you before also. I don't know if you ever have this experience, but I have this experience sometimes. It's just like, wow, I don't remember reading that that way before or whatever. It's just sort of all of a sudden I'm paying atten- more attention to it, whether. But I'd never really, for whatever reason, it just was like popped in my brain when I was studying this recently that, was, that he is talking. Not, he's talking about somebody on the street that in this next section. He's not talking about some stranger in this section. He's talking about brothers and sisters in this section. He's talking about church, uh, fellow church, can I use the word members, uh, fellow members, uh, participants in that particular assembly. He says here, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and then one of you says to them. So he's not talking about a stranger. He's not talking about somebody just that you just happen to see standing on the corner with some kind of a sign uh, that, they need, that they need help, that they need money. He's talking about somebody that you are a brother or a sister with, somebody that is, that is in his, your assembly. Now, I'm not saying that we're, we're limited to that. I'm just saying that that is specifically what James is referring to here. He is concerned with this person he's talking about. He's ta- talking about how can you just look at a brother or a sister that has needs and not meet those needs. And it's also very interesting that James includes in this particular context the word for sisters. You've all heard that at this time, uh, ladies of life, women, the women of that day were not, did not have received the same kind of status or standing that they do today, okay? Um, and and I, don't, I don't think from my vantage point growing up that it's a matter, it's a result of women's lib. Uh, in a church especially, I, I never felt there was a distinction between men and women as far as their value or their importance. I certainly was taught by example uh, from my father how, how valuable or how important uh, my mother was. Um, you could maybe disrespect my dad a little bit, but don't disrespect my mother because that was an easy way to get in really big trouble really quick. And so I never had that issue was, you know, that there was this great guys were up here and ladies were down here. I never grew up with that idea. Uh, in the, old, in the scripture time, scriptural times, that was more of a situation. Men were, have a more dominant part of society than the ladies did. So having the word sister in here is, is key, is important. I think at beginning to have James elevate that, we find later, of course, in, from Paul that he talks about there not being any distinction between male and female and, so, and Greek and Jew and so forth. So the sister is a very important thing here. But these are people that, again, the New King James I'm reading from says naked. It's just somebody that doesn't have all the clothing necessary to be warm, okay? It doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have any clothes on at all. Uh, the word allows for, like, undergarments or whatever. There's another example, I think, in John 21 where Peter cast off his clothes and jumps into the, the boat, into the uh, sea to swim to shore. It talks about some versions will say he was naked there also, but it may have just been that he that he threw away, aside his heavier coat or whatever. But anyway, uh, naked or destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? What it, how, how do they get any better? How does it help change them? How, what, to what advantage is it if you just 
just speak to them. It's interesting to depart in peace um, is a normal way of sort of closing time together, or people are separating, they're going two different directions. It was, it was a common way to say that. You would say to somebody, go in peace, okay? Uh, again, New King James has the word depart, it's just the word go. It probably makes more sense to us from just the word go. Just go in peace, okay? So that was a common everyday way of saying, of saying you know, I'll see you later, see you tomorrow, see you whatever, go in peace. It, it, the depart or the go is a command. Um, in this particular instance, uh, and it's not just here, but it's often, sometimes a command is not speaking so much of expecting obedience as it's stressing urgency, okay? So the... When the person here is saying, go in peace, he's not saying, go right now, and don't, you know, don't look back. He's saying rather to them, I want you as you go, I, I have a sense of urgency about how you travel. I have a sense of urgency about the fact that when you leave here, I want you to get where you're going peacefully. I want you to get to where you're going safely. So there's more of a sense of urgency on the part of the speaker than there is an expectation of obedience. I mean, the person is already going. I've already said goodbye, okay? I've, I, Isaac and I have been talking, and I've already said goodbye to Isaac. So I'm leaving. He knows I'm leaving, but he says, depart in peace. Go in peace. So from his point, vantage point, there's an urgency on that expression. You want, you want me to get there safely or peacefully, okay? So it's more a sense of this urgency than it is a command expecting obedience. Depart in peace. Be warmed and filled but you do not give them the things which are needed, okay? The, the, um, the process here of going away and, um, and, then, and, and then be warmed and filled, um, it's well, two different things can be expressed here, and they really both have sort of their maybe a, a merit along the way. One, the, the, the original language, again, the Greek speaker could have said this in three different ways. He could have said, I will, I will meet your needs. I will provide you clothing. I will provide you food. I will do that for you, okay? Or he could have said to them, go pull yourself up with your bootstraps. Go find something to get warmer with. Go find your own food. Or he could have been saying, let someone else meet your needs. I don't have time to meet your needs. So let somebody else do it for you. Okay? So he does not say, the speaker here does, does not say, I will do it for you. So he either says to them, go and do it yourself, or closely related, go and find someone else to meet your needs. I don't want to be bothered with you. I just want you to go away and find your help somewhere else. So it is a very cold I know that sort of indifferent, harsh way of responding to these people's needs. They did not have enough clothing to be warm. They did not even have enough food to make up a daily amount of food, however meager that may, might be. And, and most of us probably ate more for breakfast than some people eat all day in some countries, in some, some world situations. But they did not even have that basic need and the response to them is this, 
go away in peace, be warmed and be filled, but no action, nothing followed up with that, no intent of helping them. And in fact, the way it's stated here almost indicates that that's, this person is washing their hands of this. I don't want any part of it. I'm going to turn my back. I'm going to forget immediately that I haven't met you and that you even have a need. I have no interest in responding to who you are or what your needs are. Pretty harsh, huh? Pretty cold. So they're not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Takes us right back to verse 14 and says that just as faith without works is dead, so that it, the, the effect of your saying to somebody, be warm and be filled when you don't do anything about it, just as empty, just as, just as, just as senseless, just as wasted time or effort, one part or the other. Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Again, um, you know, James just has this very clever, uh, I'll use that word not in a deceitful way, of, of illustrating, of helping us to see through where he's going, what direction he's headed, what, what he's trying to teach them along, along the way. And so the words of an uncaring person are as useless as faith without actions. Okay, um, let me get caught up here with my turn of my pages. And then in verse 19, but someone, excuse me, verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Not a really hard verse to understand or figure out. It's just simply a pretty clear statement here about what's happening. And then he goes on to say in verse 19, you believe that there is one God. Now, this is a statement from Deuteronomy 6.4, if you want to turn back with me there for a moment. This is, it would be a well-known basic um, doctrinal position or theological statement made by a Jewish person, by an Israelite. Sorry, I'm not getting my pages to unfold. I'll open up. Deuteronomy 6 4 uh, says that. Uh, I must, I thought I had the right verse written down. Okay, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So the first part of that verse is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is basically what James is referring to here in, in, in James chapter 2. And it is, it is, again, a basic theological position that, that any Israelite would have held and held dearly at this particular point in time. So sorry I got confused there. But uh, So Deuteronomy 6.4, basic tenet of their, of their structure, of their life. So he says, you do that. You, you believe that. You believe that there, is, that there is one God. 
And that's a good thing. Uh, and now for us, it's like, what's the significance or the importance of that? But don't forget that these people from the Old Testament times all the way through the New Testament times are living in a culture that is, that ha is a polytheistic culture. It's a culture that has many gods. Every, they have more gods than you can imagine. Okay? There are obviously still cultures that have that today, a culture like India has just hundreds of, of gods, of deities of different le levels and orders and whatever. But for us, even though, again, we're surrounded by pagan people, by unsaved people, uh, mo most of them are not in a contrast to what we're doing here in worshiping the one and tr true God, the living God. They're not worshiping any god but gods of their own invention or creation, and we don't even know who they are. So we're not facing this quite as drastically as they did in as James is writing but for them to believe in only one God was a was a serious uh, difference uh, between them and the people around them their neighbor what would have been their neighbors so he says here you believe that there is one God you do well even the demons believe and and tremble um, it's interesting as I was looking this up how, how much um, important this was the the idea of them trembling does they have a different word anybody have a different word there at the end of uh, verse 19, that the shudder, Isaac, is that what word you had? Okay, Beverly? Okay. Yeah, it, um, whatever the scaredest you've ever been and whatever your physical response was to that, whatever the scaredest you ever were, uh, that's the idea of what the demons, how they respond, what their response is to their belief there's only one God. Um, so it was interesting as I was considering this particularly. So they believe something. They actually have an action or an activity as a result of that action. But the, but the, issue, the difference is the issue is the fact of, of, the, of the way they viewed or we view the word belief in this particular uh, verse or this particular section. So they believe something and they actually have a reaction to it, a response to it. They're scared. They're scared, but that doesn't mean they're saved, okay? And we all know that. I'm not, not teaching you anything new, but we all know that. So just, just a reminder that we, as we use the word faith or the word belief, and sometimes as the way the Scripture uses that word, uh, there are uh, different levels of that. Sometimes when somebody talks about something that they believe, all it is is an acknowledgment of facts, Okay, um, we acknowledge that that we're in a building. Okay, it's just a matter of facts. That it doesn't really go any deeper than that. Uh, and then, of course, there is beyond the knowledge of facts and between beyond the acceptance of facts is the fact that we we will take action based upon those facts. And mo most of you have used heard or used the illustration also, but it's like my identifying one of these chairs. I know it's a chair. From looking at it, my, I have enough experience in life that my brain tells me that what I'm looking at is a chair. It has four legs, it has a seat, has, even has a back. It's a chair. Okay, so I can accept the fact that it's a chair. But in order for it to be true trust or true faith or biblical faith, I not only have to know the facts about the chair and I not only have to agree to, with somebody else that it is a chair, but I actually have to be able to be willing to sit in the chair and trust the chair to hold me up, to bear my weight up, okay? And so 
in this particular case, the demons accept the fact that the Lord is one God, but they don't put any, they don't put any trust. They don't, they don't have trust. They don't have capacity to have trust in, the, in, in what they know about God. They just simply have a, have a fact that they know. It, in that fact, it alone creates a response, but it doesn't create tr- trust. It doesn't create a relationship with God. So these demons do believe. They believe the, f- the, face- the basic thoughts, but they do not believe in God uh, in a way of salvation. Reading on, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Um, not the kindest words that James will say to anybody in this, in this uh, letter, in this context, calling this person that he's having this conversation, this with rhetorical conversation, with calling them a foolish man. And so then he cha- turns to the Old Testament. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that work was working, faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was, which, was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and was accounted him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Again, um, James quotes from Genesis 22. Uh, Paul quotes from Genesis 15 when he talks about Abraham believed God and was counted for righteousness. James fast forwards, and he is quoting from when Abraham is to- asked, told to take his son up to, on the mountain and sacrifice him. And so he's talking about Abraham not in his beginning stages of walk with God, but in a more mature walk with God being tested to see what he's supposed to do with God. And so Abraham is going to uh, be shown as an example here, and, uh, and, and the, the emphasis is upon his works. So I just thought it would be interesting for us to take a moment or two. Let's talk about the times that Abraham, in the scripture, visibly shows his faith in God, shows his f- trust or faith in God, okay? So I'd like us to try to do it in a chronological order, but I don't know if, we, if that's fair, if that's willing, we can do that. But, uh, so I'm going to start out with the very first thing that Abram does is he leaves the Ur of Chaldea. Charles? Yes, when he moved from Ur, number one, right? Okay. So the very first thing is he moves from Ur, okay? And he's going to a land he has nothing known about. There's no travel bro- brochures, okay, to tell him about where, where he's headed or how he's going to get there. There's no uh, Google Maps to, to show him the way. Uh, nobody's marked out probably the water holes and, and all that stuff. It's from point to point. But he goes, he leaves her of Chaldea and obeys God, does what God wants him to do. John? Then when he leaves Haran. Yep. Conti- continues his journey, right? Okay. Very good. Okay. And then we have, and we have, we have I have noted three of them here. Um, then... So he does that, and then this is still in chapter 12. All of a sudden, he takes down off to Egypt, and what does he do that's terrible while he's in Egypt? Beverly? He tells the Pharaoh that his wife is his sister. Tells, tells the Pharaoh that, that Sarah is really just his sister, which was, was, was half truth because there was some family uh, contact there, but it, he certainly wasn't telling the truth, and he wasn't telling who Sarah really was to him. Okay? So there's a there's a, side, there's a little side road here that, that Abram ends up on between these two major steps of faith. 
Um, and then uh, back in the land now, he's going to go back in the land, and who can help me? You can look in the Bible if you want to. Who, 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 uh, what, what's the next step that, that uh, Abraham does that shows his faith in God? You may not get this one chronologically, Beverly. He separates from Lot. Yeah, he trusted God, gave Lot the best, said, I, I don't want to fight with you. Just go. Take the best lands. Just go do whatever you want to do. I'm not going to fight with you about it. I'm going to, and though it's maybe not in so many words, but I'm going to trust God to continue to provide my needs. I'm going to trust God to take care of me, even though I'm giving you the best land. I'm going to trust God to take care of you. Abraham says, I'll show you my faith by God by the way I treat Lot, by the way I respond to Lot. Abraham didn't have to do that. He could have said, Lot, just pack your bags, go back home, go live in the hills, you know, uh, go live in the desert. I don't care about who you are or what you're doing, but he doesn't do that. So he Lot in the land, and what about maybe the next thing that happens? Isaac? He rescues Lot. He not, only, he not only gives him the very best, but then Lot gets, gets uh, taken away, and, you know, and Abram doesn't say, oh, well, nice knowing your nephew Lot. Maybe I'll catch up with you later. He gathers up his servants, goes out and fights a superior force, showing his faith in God, his trust in God, and he comes back victorious because God was with him and God honored his obedience and his, his faith, his trust. And so he goes and rescues Lot. And then the next little sidelight that I noted as we look this, uh, this way is Abram deciding he has to take this whole matter of having a son into his own hands. And he has relationships with Hagar. And Hagar, of course, uh, conceives and so forth. But another little sidestep. He's had shown these major things that he's doing. And um, he, then this takes this sidestep. And by the way, I have written down, so I almost look, overlooked it, but when he rescues Lot, who, who, do, who does he worship as he returns from that victory? John? He worships God at the uh, point of Melchizedek. Okay. He gives tithes of all. Yep. Did you forget that he built an altar to the Lord in Mamre, which was Hebron, before he went out to rescue Lot? I didn't. significant in God's eyes. That's good. I did not make note of that, but that's good. So, uh, so Melchizedek, again, um, wh- what, whoever you think Melchizedek is or was, uh, there is still an act of worship. There's an act of giving tithes. And so Abraham, again, recognizes God, recognizes God in the part of, the, of this victorious military action and, and, and recognizes that God does that. So then we've got Hagar, and then w- what happens next? Again, if you're look, following through in the Scripture, probably not got too hard to find it, but... Um, circumcision, uh, God gives the, the, what is to be a long-term sign between him and the people of Israel, the people of Abraham, and that is the act of circumcision for, for the male child. And um, another thing about Lot, what's the next thing is about, I have, and again, as John's already pointed out, I missed one, missed a pretty important one, but... Uh, <laughs> Comes, comes along here with this matter of Lot. Uh, Lot's in Sodom. What's God getting ready to do with Sodom? Wipe it out, destroy it. And what does Abraham do about his nephew Lot? He, pray, he prays for him, doesn't he? Intercedes for him. Make, makes, just kept, keeps saying, you know, if there's this many 
righteous, if there, will you spare? If there's a righteous, will you spare it? And, but, he, but he intercedes for Lot. He, he, he just has this deep commitment to Lot and everything that's happening there. And the next uh, sidestep that we have is Abimelech. And again, you know, I just point these out because, you know, this man isn't perfect. He doesn't do absolute everything right. He's not always obedient. He sins and sins terribly. Um, I mean, I don't think there's anything worse than what he does both in Egypt and here with Abimelech and, and uh, misrepresenting his relationship with his wife. I don't think there's anything a man can do that's much lower than that. Um, but uh, that is what happens. So Abimelech also uh, comes up here. Um, I'm looking at the clock, so I'm just going to... So, so uh, Abram's relationship between Isaac and Ishmael, he sees that Isaac is the promised son. He sees that Ish, the, with Ishmael still being in the camp, it's just a matter of contention, a matter of difficulty. So he trusts God for Isaac, sends Ishmael out into the wilderness. Um, the intended sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22... The securing of a wife for Isaac also, and then that God blessed him with 175 years of life. So when, when James says that Abraham had works and his faith was demonstrated in his actions or his activity or his works, it's not just one, it's a, it's a lengthy display of them, uh, and we're not even talking about all the days uh, they walk with God uh, in between times, but nevertheless, there is this very, very long, long matter here that we see. And for the last thing we'll talk about today it, uh, is verse 22. Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works, faith was made perfect? Uh, you can see it in the English text. It's uh, maybe more even, even a little bit more emphatic in the original text. But in the English text, notice that it is the faith that is working together with his works. Both, both words uh, are here. So it's, a, it's almost like a play on words. He's emphasizing that works are the result of works, which I know sounds silly, but there is that emphasis that is being placed here. And then that that kind of faith was made perfect. And what have we talked about time and time again about the word perfect? Remind us, somebody? Mature, functional, something that really could work, something that really could make a difference in a life. That's what the kind of faith that uh, James is talking about here. He's not talking about just talk. He's not just talking about allegiance to um, some kind of a doctrinal position. But he's talking about faith in God that changes lives, faith in God that produces activity, that produces action, that makes a, a difference. And let me read to you a, this is a, uh, can I say a, um, I don't even know if you're allowed to do this, but anyway, I, I sort of uh, cleaned this quote up a little bit, so I thought it was maybe a little easier to, to understand what it was saying. This is from a, uh, an author named Edmund Hybert. Hebert, H-I-E-B-E-R-T. He says that James is making greatly needed correction to the unreal, verbalistic kind of religion, where talk is cheap, that claims allegiance to high doctrine, but places the issues of daily life on a low and selfish level. And so uh, James is correcting the idea that I can, everything is fine, 
if I have my theology correct, I don't have to have any activity, I don't have to have any actions as long as my theology is right. And don't misunderstand me, the, the importance of correct theology is, is paramount, okay? But it's not enough to do that if we have real faith, because real faith will have action, real faith will have, will have activity. And so we should be thankful for the opportunity to have that also. One other thing just to point out to you, I mention, or mention to you that I would talk about that this passage is trying to put faith and, wor- and works or faith and activity in, into balance, trying to balance them. But when I, when I say that they're trying to balance them, I'm not saying that faith and works are equal. Okay? I'm just saying that they need to be lived out in balance. Okay? Um, but they're not equal because faith comes first and, and works comes out of our faith. Okay, so faith obviously is more important. Faith is obviously a greater truth. But true faith, living faith, will produce act- activity or action. And so it's important to have that balance between them. Sometimes, even today in our world, uh, people will get out of balance. They may be genuinely saved, but somewhere along the way they've gotten more wrapped up in their daily religious routine than they are in really coming to learn and walk with God in a more intimate way on a regular basis. So they, they have a, they may, they may give hours to the church or they may give hours to doing, in quotes, good things, but they're not maturing in their faith with God. They're not, they're not pursuing a closer walk with God. So they lose they lose that balance. Even though they're truly Christians, they just lose the balance of continuing to get closer to God and they just get wrapped up in activity. That's a danger that we have. And it's a danger that we have because of our volunteerism because we do so many things through volunteerism that we can overemphasize the idea of volunteering time and not pursuing God or, or practicing godliness as a different thought. Okay? Thank you. Uh, we'll pray and then we'll, I trust all of you will have a a blessed Thanksgiving, a very special uh, time of Thanksgiving. We're leaving on Tuesday to go to to Michigan to our daughters, so we're looking forward to that and uh, trust that we'll we'll all have a good time and better, more than just turkey, but a good, a good thanks, Thanksgiving time. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you that James so adequately answers this question. Help us to be wise, help us to be very careful, help us to be astute. Help us not to tell people to depart in peace without providing them the needs that they have to meet that need that they have. Give us grace and mercy in our lives to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.